After you do that, go ahead, grab your Bible or however you access the scriptures and find your way to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at the last few verses of chapter 3, verse 17 to verse 21 this morning. And uh, this morning we are continuing the series we call Transcend. We've been going through the book of Philippians for a number of months now. And the whole concept of transcend has to do with Paul, who's writing this letter to a group of people who are going through difficult times, also is going through difficult times on his own. He's writing from prison, put there because he was telling people about Jesus. So when he writes, it's, it's one of those things where he, he's writing in a way that helps people to realize you don't have to be a victim of your own life, that you actually can transcend the circumstances that you live in to live the life that God desires you to live, regardless of what happens around you. And so we're learning a lot of things from that. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been in chapter three where Paul kind of flips a switch from two to three where he starts talking about very personal things to him. So a few weeks ago, we talked about Paul said, there's one thing that is the most important thing in all of my life, and that is to know Jesus. No other accomplishment, no other thing I've ever done comes close to just knowing Jesus. And then last week, uh, if you weren't here, Danny Canales, who's our worship leader, spoke, and it was amazing. And if you didn't get a chance to hear it, you can go online on the website, and you can watch it or listen there. But he just talked about how, now Paul says, not that I've obtained this full knowledge of Jesus, but I'm now pressing towards that. I'm moving on. I'm going after what God is doing in my life. And then we get to this week where he kind of shifts uh, again, and he talks about something that you and I don't realize that actually dictates a lot of our behavior. The best way to define it is either using the word motives or values. And values and motives are things internally that cause us to do things externally, and sometimes we don't realize they're the very things that are driving us in life. And so this morning we want to talk about what drives us, because sometimes I think we don't realize that, that something's driving us internally that's making us make decisions and do things on the outside that we don't really realize is there. It's not bad to be driven as long as you're driven for the things that God wants you to be driven for. And so this morning as we prepare to do this, uh, I wanted to also mention too, uh, during worship, uh, Kim 14 came up to me and she just shared, she felt like the Lord was giving her a picture of the, you know, in the Gospels, that, that pool of Bethesda where Jesus came and healed the man who was waiting by the pool as the, the, the superstition was, as the pool steward, stirred, that it, the first person in the pool would be healed. And just the image that Kim was getting, and I, and I agree with this, and it really will dial into where we're going in this message this morning, is that God's stirring the waters, but you got to jump in. You can't sit on the side. You have to jump into what God is doing. You have to be all in. And so I really feel like that applies to what we'll walk through in this journey. And so um, not, a, not a disclaimer or a disqualifier or anything like that, but this will be a pretty direct message just because when Paul starts talking about things that are personal to him, he, he talks with more passion, and I feel very passionate about in my own life what, what are some of the things that we're going to highlight today. So, but here's kind of an understanding of what, what it looks like to be driven and not realize you're driven. So motives and values come from the inside, and they show up in moments in our life when we don't expect them to. And if you look at the scope of your life, you will be able to tell what you value, not by what you say you value, but what you actually value through what, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, what's most important in your life. That's what you truly value. It doesn't matter what we say. It's actually what we do, and that shows what's inside of us. So we had uh, our dog, Bella, the kids had growing up. Um, she, we had to put her down a few years ago, but... We could never replace her because to me, in my mind, she was like the perfect dog. Okay, she really well behaved, really good around kids, um, just an amazing dog. But she had one vice, and her vice was cats. And I, I'm not kidding that, that there's something about a cat that caused her to change 
her personality. So she was pretty compliant, always really good, always like, you know, really very affectionate, always wanted to be around people. And, but when a cat showed up, it's like she became deranged. It was like the strangest thing. And so I was out in the, in the front yard mowing one day, and I had the side gate open. And, and out of the corner of my eye, I see this black flash. I mean, literally just a flash of black. And then as I turn, I see there's a cat in the middle of the street, and Bella's already picked up on the cat, and so she's going right after it. So the cat sees Bella, starts running, goes underneath a car. Bella's circling the car, and the cat's like, you know, standing there. What am I going to do? And then the cat bolts and goes into our neighbor's backyard across the street. Well, Bella's not giving up because she's deranged. She's going after the cat. So literally, she follows, she follows the cat right into the backyard. I didn't notice that my, my next door, or my, my neighbor across the street, he's in his backyard, and Bella just comes barreling into his yard, and I think it was his cat. And so he's like saving the cat, and Bella's ready to kill the cat. And so he was not very happy with us. So I, I get over there, and I pull Bella back, and I, I'm like, I'm looking, and I'm like, this is not you. This is not the nice dog that, that has always been easy to take care of and loves to be around people and is very compliant and very obedient. Why in the world would you go crazy over a cat? Why? Because there's something inside of her that is driving her to do something on the outside of her. So you think, well, I'm not a dog. No, I know we're not dogs, but we do have those instincts in us that are values that drive us, that cause us to do things that maybe we don't want to do. So which is really kind of the first part of what we're going to look at today. But if you have your Bibles, let me read verse 17 to verse 21, what Paul talks about. Now he kind of shifts gears here. He says this in verse 17, Philippians 3. He says, brothers, join in Im imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So with those verses this morning, I want to start by talking about the values or the motives that we find their way into us that actually end with a dead end. They don't go anywhere. In fact, it's not that even they don't go anywhere. They actually end up leading to destruction. Because look what Paul says in verse 18. He says they are what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. Going the opposite direction of Jesus' sacrifice, his, his, his forgiveness extended to us that makes it possible for us to live right with God and to live the, li the life God wants for us. There, there is motivation and values that drive us the opposite direction. And what do those look like in our lives? So look at verse 19. This is the first thing of, of four things that are kind of the, the motives that drive underneath in our lives and in the culture around us that we have to be aware of. The first one is this, ignoring the future for the present. So the first part of verse 19, Paul says, their end is destruction. So what he's saying is he's talking about people who are moving along a journey in life and don't give a thought to where the journey leads. They're just concerned with what happens now. They don't see about tomorrow or the end of the road that leads to destruction. So they live in the moment not realizing that down the road there's something that's going to lead them into a place they don't want to be in their lives. It's having a very small kind of vision of your life because you're not looking beyond the moment. And when we get focused in on the moment, we don't think about, what if I keep living this out in my life? What is it going to look like in my life? In fact, listen 
to what Proverbs chapter 14, verses 12 and 13 says. This is in a paraphrase called the message. So there's a way of life that looks harmless enough. Look again. It leads straight to hell. Sure, those people appear to be having a good time, but all that left laughter will end in heartbreak. See, so what happens is that then there's a, there's a motive inside of us that says, today is all I'm worried about. I'm just going to live for today. I'm not going to think about what the ramifications of what my decisions are beyond today. So I'm just going to live in the moment. What happens when you get to tomorrow? What happens when you get to next week? What happens when you get to the end of the month? What happens when you get five years down your life and the, deci the decisions you've made now are actually leading to a place, to a place where you never thought you would be? What is that? That's a lack of judgment. And when we're kids, there's an excuse for that. It's called ignorance. It's the ignorance of youth. But as adults, we don't have any excuses. We're just stupid. We just make bad decisions. We just don't think about what's coming next. But maybe you can relate to, to my, my upbringing. So when I was a kid, I made a lot of bad decisions. Anybody want to admit you've ever made a bad decision? Why? Because... Because when you're a kid, you don't think about the, the moment is what you're thinking about. You don't think about what's going to happen in the next moment. You don't think about the impact of your decisions or your actions. So we, I grew up in a neighborhood where we had lots of kids, like always this herds of kids going around our neighborhood. And so, of course, when kids get together, they do good things, but they also do wrong things, right? So I don't know whose idea it was, but one night... I think it was in the summertime, so we're all no school, so we're out late because the sun's out later and it's warmer, and, and so someone comes up with this great idea. Let's go down to, there's this corner house, there, our, our street was pretty quiet, but there's a cross street down at the end of our street that had a lot of traffic that went on it, and, and so someone got this great idea, there's these hedges at the corner house that you could hide behind, and it just so happened that at the base of where those hedges are, their dirt clumped really well. It clotted, like a dirt clod, you know? And so someone's got this great idea. Let's throw dirt clods at cars going by. We'll hide behind the bushes, and nobody will know where the dirt clod came from. Now, at eight years old, that sounds like so much fun, right? We're not throwing rocks. No one's going to get hurt. We're not going to break a window. It's dirt. It shatters on impact, right? And so we did that one night, and it was fun. And I think we hit a couple cars, and the cars kind of slowed down, but they kept on driving. Then we did it another. And it went on for a couple days, and then it went on for a couple weeks. And we were having a blast. Dirt clods every night. There's dirt all over the street now, and, you know, cars have no idea what's coming until one night. I don't know who threw it, but somebody had the best accuracy of any of us, and a car going by happened to have the passenger window open. The dirt clod went right through the window and hit the person sitting in the passenger right in the face. Now, we knew something bad had happened because the brakes hit immediately. There was a squeal of tires. And so we all just, like, scram. We're, like, out of there as fast as we can. So I was fast enough to get away. And others were a little slower. So apparently what happened is the person came and drove up and down the street till they found some kid to blame. I don't know who, who was the one that got caught. But then, of course, there's this realization that it can't hurt anybody. Throwing dirt clods, it won't hurt anybody. Actually, it did. It hurt, it hurt this person in the eye, and it, their eyes swelled up, and it was just, it was a horrible scene. But we never thought of that the night that someone said, I got a great idea. Let's throw dirt clods at cars. Not one of us thought, you know what? Somebody's going to get hurt here. Why? Because we weren't thinking beyond this moment. And how many times in our life, what Paul's talking about, what drives us is that we forgot that there's a tomorrow, there's a next week, there's a next month, there's a next year, there's a road and a path that we're on, and every decision we make today leads us closer to that destination. What decisions are we making? What's motivating us that's going to take us either to life or what Paul's talking about here, to destruction? 
Second thing, look at verse 19. Another motive or value that kind of leads to this dead end is the worship of pleasure. So Paul actually uses this analogy, and he says their God is their belly. He's talking about the driving force of physical food, of eating, and that being what, because food brings joy, we think a little is good, more is better. So we eat, and we eat, and we eat. And he's using this as an analogy for us to understand that pleasure is this bait that leads to addiction. It leads to addiction in our life. It leads beyond where we want to be. It leads to a place where we end up ending up living a life that we don't want to live, what, that is full of destruction, not of life, because we think that more and more is better in our lives. A dead end is our destination if what feels best to us trumps what is best for us. And how many times do we think this feels right, so I'm going to do it not realizing it's not the best thing for us. So Paul uses this analogy. How many times in our life have we done that? We're driven by pleasure, so we make a decision not thinking about how that's going to impact the rest of our life. Came across a statistic in the last couple weeks. This shocked me. Could not believe it, but I thought that's probably accurate. You know, in America now, the average person spends 10,000 hours playing video games by the time they turn 21. 10,000 hours. You know what you could do in 10,000 hours? You could earn a bachelor's and a master's degree. 10,000 hours. Somebody's like, yeah, I got my master's in video games, right? But just think about that. that. That is an addiction, what, that says pleasure, what this does for me in this moment is more important than anything else. So you think, oh, thank goodness I don't play video games. Well, it doesn't have to be video games. It could be anything else. It could be pornography. The momentary satisfaction that you think you receive from that drives you to make a decision that before you know it, it takes over your life and leads down the road of destruction. We're like, oh, good thing. I don't play video games. I don't look at porn. Well, what about work? Work's the same thing. Work drives us to the point where I can do more. I can do better. I can make more money. And so before you know it, you become someone who works 80 hours a week. And not only do you work 80 hours a week, you take pride in your 80 hours a week. You let everybody know about how much, how hard you work. Why? Because somehow there's some momentary satisfaction in how hard that you work. But what does 80 hours a week over a lifetime lead to? It leads to a family that falls apart. It leads to stress. It leads to all kind of destruction. It sometimes will lead to ignoring the fact that there is the gospel that comes to bear on your life, that there's something more important than your job. What is it? What is the pleasure that you and I seek? Maybe it isn't those things. Maybe it's social media. Or maybe, I think this is the big one for all of us in our, in our city, is comfort. Comfort bl- brings a sense of pleasure and satisfaction, so we're driven by comfort. So we do everything to provide and afford for ourselves a sense of comfort in our lives. Safety, that's why we live in the safest city in the country, right? Pfft, right. The illusion of safety that makes us feel a sense of what? Comfort. We make decisions on the car we drive, the house that we live in, all based on what? I want to be comfortable. What happens when that becomes the driving force? You aren't thinking about the fact that when you choose to follow Jesus, comfort is not an option that you get to choose. It's a nice bonus every once in a while, but it's not the focus of our life. It's not what drives us. It's not the motivation. And so because of that, you and I have to take a step back and say, okay, Paul's using this analogy that, that the God of my life is my belly or is that the place that I draw pleasure? Is that the place that God wants me to be? Then there's a third thing. And that is in the last part of the next part of verse 19, is that we take pride in our sin. 
there's a motivation within us, there's a value in us that actually goes through this journey. Paul says this, they glory in their shame. So now he's talking about culture, but I think he's also talking about the fact that culture invades the lives of believers, and we become like the culture that we live in. So he's talking about there's this, there's this progression of what sin does in our life. When we're on the road to destruction or the, to a dead end, we don't realize it, that what happens, there was a time in our life where certain activity was taboo. It was sinful. It was shameful. And we felt guilt and conviction. But as we continue to go down that road, making decision after decision every day of our life, what happens is it not only goes from being not so bad, even though we know it's kind of wrong, we actually go to the full-blown transition where that very thing that used to be wrong is the very thing that I glory in in my life. That's the culture that we live in. That's the transition that happens in our lives when we continue to go down this road where something used to be wrong, and now it's not only wrong, it's celebrated as being right. That's the culture that we live in. That happens in so many different areas of our life. So when we think about what is our glory, it's not that we sacrifice or that we have great character or that we're generous people. What ends up happening is that we start glorying in things like fame, violence, greed, selfishness, indulgence. And we champion those things in our culture as saying, this is what will bring you happiness. So hear me, hear me on this one. Almost every year we watch the Grammys. We watch a lot of reward shows, which, by the way, uh, some of you who think, oh, man, don't watch that's bad stuff. Yeah, it is bad stuff, but it's the culture that you and I live in. And if you and I don't understand the culture we live in, we become the frog in the kettle. We don't understand the world that we live in. So when you watch the Grammys, I'll tell you, there's great moments when I'm watching the Grammys and think, man, that person is incredibly talented. God bless that person with the ability to write music or to write lyric and to perform, and it's amazing. And then there's other parts of the Grammys I look at, and that what's used as a creative platform now becomes not a way to say, wow, let's value your creativity. It becomes a platform to say, I'm going to live the way I want to live, and so much so that I'm going to tell you that I'm going to glory in my shame of my sin. The thing that used to be taboo in my life is no longer taboo in my life. In fact, it's the very thing that I proclaim is what brings happiness, and you should live in it too. I'll tell you, when I watch the Grammys, it's what Jesus, what Paul just wrote. He talks about, he's talking about a group of people that are breaking his heart. That there's this sometimes, like, what's it, righteous indignation says, that's wrong, that's sin. Yeah, it is, but does your heart break over that? Or do you just pass judgment on the people who are struggling in that? You and I should see the world around us and our hearts should break. Why? Because someone's glorying in the shame that God wants to change in their life. But what's happened is they found the, the ability to quiet the voice of shame enough so they can continue to live the way they want to live. Now hear me on this one. I want to be sensitive on this. But I'll tell you the progression of this in the church, not, not in just culture, but we, we follow the trend of the culture, is in the area of sex. We have followed the progression of the evolution of the way that we look at sex in our culture Whereas before, there was, a, there was a high value in the church and in the culture of sex being something that God created in the context of marriage, man and woman, and that was what it was acceptable as a normal kind of understanding of sexuality. That is not a normal, acceptable idea of sexuality anymore in our culture. It's whenever, with whoever, why? Because pleasure is my God, and because pleasure is my God, it's my choice of what makes me happy. Now hear me on this. This is, real, uh, this is really important because so many times when I, what I say and I'm saying already, some of you have filled in the blank and you said, oh, he's talking about homosexuality. He's talking about a gay lifestyle. Now let me just talk about something outside of that. Here's a bigger problem, I think, for the church. It's not the way you treat someone who's dealing with same-sex attraction or living in a homosexual relationship. It's the way you and I view sex as a whole. 
Because you know what's happened also at the same time as our culture has had this evolving understanding of sexuality is that the church has followed suit. And now in the church, it's, it's amazing that there are people who have sex outside the context of marriage who claim to follow Jesus and think, it's fine. Either God will forgive me because I live under grace or what used to be taboo, it's just normal behavior now, Right? We know that that's true. Why? Because statistics say that those who are promiscuous outside of marriage, outside the church, inside the church, there's no difference percentage-wise. It's just become acceptable. Now, if, please hear me. I'm not trying to guilt, guilt, put guilt or shame on anybody, but that's the progression of what Paul's talking about. What's motivating us now is this idea that the very thing that used to be wrong is no longer wrong anymore. It's acceptable behavior. And then the moment that somebody says, no, that's not right, then you become what? Judgmental, legalistic. And you're like, and, but if your heart is because your heart breaks for that person, there's a different motivation. It isn't just a matter of right and wrong. It's about what is motivating you to make that decision. I want to help you get down to the value in you that's causing you to do that so that God can transform your soul. I know it's getting a little quiet, so we'll move right on here. The last part of verse 19, Paul gives us another understanding of what motivates us that leads to a dead end, and that is consumption and accumulation. That last phrase, Paul says, with mindset on earthly things. Everything around us, all of what we, what we call, kind of we can even, we'll classify it, sometimes we call it the American dream, is this idea that, that I need to have stuff, I need to have earthly things in order for my life to be happy. That's kind of the, the mentality that we buy into, and Paul talks about how that becomes the driving force in people's lives. In fact, it's, it's that we go after money not because we want to have a lot of money in our bank account, but because we think that money will afford us and provide us all the things that we want and we need and that we have to have to be happy. That's what drives us. In fact, listen to what Paul said also in 1 Timothy 6, uh, 9 and 10. Again, remember, he says the word money, but he's what's, it's what money represents to us. He says, people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin, and here it is again, destruction. For the love of money, what money represents, is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, this is what we've bought into. If a little is good, then more is better. Right? Haven't we bought into that? Because what used to be good enough is no longer good enough. I have to have more in order to reach the same level of satisfaction. So I just have to go bigger and bigger and more and more in my life until I feel like I reach it. And then by the time you feel like you're satisfied, you're going to get more and more. It's, it's the mentality of an all-you-can-eat buffet. Anybody been to one of those lately? Right? It's that mindset that says, wow, all of this is mine for a small price. Right? So you go and you're like, so I'll, I'll just, here's my confession. About once a month, Jordan and I go to the, the, uh, the lunch buffet at Round Table Pizza. I love it. And you go in there and you get all you can eat pizza, all you can eat like those little garlic twists and the cinnamon twists and the salad. And just you can just eat as much as you want. It's like, wow. I'm like, in heaven. I love, I love to eat. I do. So we sit down. Here's the problem, though. As you're eating, about 20 minutes in, you start to realize, oh, I guess there is a price to pay for eating so much food when your stomach starts to say, no more, no more. In fact, I, I'm, sitting there, I'm sitting there with Jordan a couple weeks ago, and I'm like, oh, man, I'm just so full. I'm like, oh, but they just put out the hot cinnamon twists, right? <laughs> I got a cold one before, and like, I got to get another one in there. And then I roll out of there just all regretting, like, why did I do that? Why? Because if a little is good, more is better, right? That's what drives us. 
And that's why we end up in a culture that values things. We value things. It's like, oh, no, we don't. Yes, we do. And we have to own this as a nation. We value things. A couple weeks ago, I heard, like, an alarming statistic. I could not believe it. In the United States right now, there are more self-storage facilities than McDonald's, Subway, and Dunkin' Donuts combined. There are over 50,000 self-storage facilities in the United States. It's ridiculous. Why do we have self-storage? Because I ran out of room. And so I put all my stuff in storage, and then what happens? I pay somebody else to hold my junk, right? So somebody gets wealthy off my junk, and then I forget I even have it. But I got to hang on to my stuff. What's that called? Hoarding. Now, there's a psychological concept to hoarding, but I think some of us, it isn't psychological at all. It's just I have to have more to be happy. So I continue to hang on to more and more in my life. So understanding that those are the motives, those are the values that drive underneath the service that end up in a dead end or end up in destruction in our lives. Then Paul turns and talks about, but then there should be these kind of motives, these kind of values in our life that actually lead to, lead to life that God wants us to live. So he says in verse 16 or verse 17, he says, those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's saying, look at my lifestyle, look at what I've done and see what's driven my life. Because now this is where Paul's going to define where it is good to be driven. In fact, it's something that you and I should be driven by and what he highlights in these few things. So look at verse 20. Kind of the first value or motive that, that leads to life is an eternal perspective. He says, but our citizenship is where? In heaven. So this is the difficulty. Let's just be honest about the condition that we find ourselves in. Paul says, your citizenship is where? Heaven. Anybody been to heaven lately? So what is he saying? He's saying, you are home in a place that you've never been. That's hard to fathom, isn't it? So what, what, what makes us understand what home is or where we are a citizen means that we were either born here or we found a way to be, become a citizen. It's something that's familiar. It's home. That's where we want to be. But what he's saying is your home is not where you live right now. Your home is not your reality. Your home is in heaven, which means we have to switch our perspective on the way that we live our life, which means... Even though this is familiar, even though we would call this home being in our own bodies, being in the physical world, we have to look as though we are living as what? Foreigners. That we don't belong here. Because we belong in another reality, our citizenship where it's in, it's in heaven. Now, if we were able to actually understand that, to say, this life is as bad as it's going to get for me if I'm a follower of Jesus. That means the next life is going to be ten times better than this. Why? Because I'll finally be home and realize what it is to be home in the presence of Jesus. If that reality is true, then it should change everything about the way I live my life every single day. If I really believe this. One of the dangers of reading the Bible so many times is that it just becomes commonplace. Do you hear what Paul's saying? We don't belong here. We're foreigners. How do you live as a foreigner? You don't necessarily understand the language or the culture or the food. You, you might engage in it, but it's not something that is normal to you. Why? Because there's something beyond you. 
if you and I really believe that our citizenship is somewhere else and we belong somewhere else and Jesus has bought our citizenship for us and that when we die, we go to be with him and that's for eternity and that's better than this reality, how does it change the way we live our life? That means anxiety should disappear when it comes to whether we live or we die. Why? Because we know the end. If our citizenship's in heaven, we already know the end. Why? Because Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, has sealed forever what he's done for us to make sure that we could be with him forever. If that is taken care of, which means I'm a citizen in heaven, then why in the world are we so worried about whether we live or we die? Because we really don't believe it. So we do everything to hang on to this life, to sustain this life. But what if we really believe the end of the story? At the end of the story, because Jesus has won, we win. What if we believe that? Every single day I get up and think, you know what? I'm, I, I win at the end of all this, whether I live or I die, which is exactly what Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. At the end of the day, I can't lose. Then why are we so worried? Why are we so uptight? Why are we so overwhelmed? Because we don't really believe it. So you ever watched a movie with somebody who's already seen the movie? Yeah. And if they're irri- it's really irritating if that person's like, oh, this is a really good part. Oh, you don't want to miss this part. Like, shut up. I'm trying to watch the movie, right? So uh, a couple weeks ago, we were watching the movie Commuter. Jordan had already seen it. And Jordan's really good to see a movie when he's already seen it. He's not like always like, oh, oh, you know. It's like Courtney on the other hand, she would go, oh, oh, you know, this part. But Jordan's like usually pretty calm. And so we're sitting there. Kim and I had not seen it. We're watching it together with Jordan. And, and, uh, and so if you haven't seen the movie, it's a pretty intense film throughout. Like there's just a lot of like twists. And so it's real intense. And so Kim and I are like sitting on the edge of the couch, like not knowing what's going next and it happening next. And I'm like, oh man, this is super intense. And so I'm like, I'm like, usually I don't get real intense, but like I can feel my body's like tense. I'm like, okay, I'm into this movie. And then I look at Kim and she's kind of leaning forward too. And then I turn to look at Jordan and he's almost falling asleep. And I'm like, hey, we paid good money to watch this. What you want? And I'm thinking, Duh. He already knows how this ends. He already knows all the plot twists. He knows all the, era, all the character development. He knows why this is happening here. Because he's already seen the end, so he's, not, he's completely chilling out on the other side of the couch. When I look around the church, I don't see a lot of Christians who are chilling out about the future. I think we're worried and we're concerned and we have anxiety. Why? Because we're not convinced we win. If we were convinced we won, it changes everything. Because if you know you're going to win, you can't lose let me give you this perspective okay this is this is this is i saw this last night okay i've not been a huge lebron james fan but i am becoming one because the guy is amazing so this is basketball if you're not basketball i'm just going to tell you there's something i've watched in lebron james that's different than most other players he actually believes he has the capacity to win every game He doesn't just make it up. He believes it. Last night, they won on a last-second shot that he made, and when he took the shot, you could see it on his face. It's like as though he had, like, some premonition that he was going to make the winning shot, and he knew he was going to win, and he played with that level of confidence. But he didn't know, but it seemed like he did. How is that possible? Because he played with a confidence that he knew the outcome before the outcome almost seemed like it was determined. If you and I really believed that we were going to win and felt like we were going to win, we would live our lives differently. We would be willing to give everything. Why? Because in losing, we actually do what? Gain. Second thing, the next part of verse 20, is another value motive towards life is that we eagerly, or we we have an eager anticipation of the future. 
So Paul says, and from it we, and there's a word that NIV inserts, says eagerly, I insert that, uh, I don't think ESV has that, but eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We eagerly await a Savior, which means we anticipate with excitement that we get to see Jesus. This is Paul writing from his personal experience. This is what drove his life every single day. His citizenship was in heaven. He knew if he lived or he died, he was going to encounter Jesus. And because of that, he lived with a great sense of anticipation every day of his life. He was leaning in and leaning forward constantly. Why? Because he knew if he died, he'd see Jesus. And if he lived, that Jesus may return in his lifetime, he'd see him anyway. That drove him with anticipation for the future. Does anticipation for the fact that you and I are going to see Jesus someday drive any part of our life? It should. Think about the things in your life that you've anticipated. Think about the things that bring joy and excitement to you, that you know they're coming and you can't wait for them. What happens to you? You can't get those things out of your mind. Why? They're driving you internally. Why? Because you can't wait for the day when that arrives, when that happens. So you, uh, you live every day with, it's only 10 more days, it's only 5 more days, it's only 4 more days. Why? It's this anticipation of something that's coming. So what Paul's talking about, eagerly await, we get to see Jesus. I can think of lots of those moments in my life where that's eager anticipation. When Kim and I got married, I remember I was so excited to, to finally marry the love of my life. And I remember we had our rehearsal the Thursday night. That's the way the church we were doing it. We couldn't do it Friday night, and then the, the wedding was Saturday. So I had a day in between. A day to wait. Oh my gosh, right? So excited. And I remember I got up on that Friday. I was so, I'm like, tomorrow. Like, every, like during the day, like, by tomorrow I'm going to be married. And by the next day, we're going to go on our honeymoon. All these things, you know. And so I was the, I'm the baby of the family. All three of my sisters had gotten married already. And so they asked me, what do you want to do your last day of being single? I'm like, I want you all to come over to mom and dad's house. And let's just hang out. And I remember, I can still picture, we we're all sitting in my mom and dad's living room. And I'm just sitting there. And I'm like not saying anything. I'm just like beaming. I'm so excited. And my sisters could tell I was so excited. They're like, man, you're pumped. I'm like, I am. I just, this is, I'm, so, I'm like nervous, excited, I can't wait. Just this anticipation, just, I'm like, everything was better, right? Everything that you do is just excitement. The excitement of when Courtney and Jordan came into the world. I mean, when Courtney, I remember when Kim's water broke, she texted, or she didn't text me, she actually used a pager because that's what it was. We had, she paged me the code, 911, which meant baby's coming. I was in a meeting at 6 a.m. at the church. I got the 911. I got on the phone, and I said, what's up? My water's broke. I'm like, all right, here we go. So I woke, I'm not exaggerating. I broke every traffic law from the church to our house because I was like, seriously, I'm going 85 on the freeway. I get there. I'm ready to go. And, and if you know my wife, I come in, and she's all calm. She's like, I'm just quick. I'm bouncing the checkbook before we go to the hospital because you know my wife, everything has to be in its place, right? I'm like, let's go. We only just hurry to get to the hospital to wait 22 hours for Courtney to finally come into the world. I'm sure Kim was waiting longer than I was and was anticipating something sooner than I was. But what was that? That was anticipation. That was excitement. There's something greater than marrying the love of your life and greater than your first child coming into the world. It's seeing Jesus. That should drive us. That's what Paul's saying. How in the world can Paul live his life with great joy in the middle of a prison where he's put, been put because he's telling people the good news about God's love and that God forgives through Jesus, and he's thrown in the prison, then he says, but I eagerly await a Savior in Jesus Christ because he actually believed it. He actually believed that he was going to see Jesus, and because of that, it drove his life. Final point. Look at verse 21. 
The last motive that leads to life is the hope of complete transformation. Verse 21 says, Paul writes, He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So I'm convinced, and I know this is true in my life, I don't sit around contemplating, man, what is my glorified body going to look like? What is it going to feel like? I don't get up in the morning and think, mm, glorified body today, right? No, I think about physical body, I'm tired, I have aches and pains, I'm sore, right? That's the reality. But what is Paul saying? What is this, this understanding? What drives us is that this physical body, this earthly life, has a time frame on it. And there will be a time where we get to trade in this body, this life, for a new body and a new life that lasts forever. Think about that for a moment. If that's true, then how does it shape the way we live our life today? What does it drive in us? What does it motivate in us? Listen to what Paul, what, what is written in, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. This is what the vision that John gets that, that of what, what's going to happen in the future, what Paul's anticipating when eventually we're going to get those resurrected bodies, those glorified bodies. But he says this, this is what was written in, in Revelation, uh, this is what John writes. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. How much do you spend thinking about that reality? In fact, I'm going to ask the worship team to come join me. The whole team can come up right now. We're going to go into communion in a moment. But I want to I just settle in on this for just a moment. I want you just to think we have such a tendency to be about here and now and not about the future. And we never let the future shape the present. We're always trying to make the present shape the future. And we get it backwards. Paul's talking about future shaping the present. That's how Paul could live the life that Paul lived. But I just want to just taking what Paul says in verse 21, think about this reality. There's going to be a moment when this lowly, broken down, human physical body is going to be exchanged for what? The glorified body that Jesus got after the resurrection where he no longer was contained to one place at one time. He was no longer having to walk through a doorway when he could walk through a wall. He could literally go from one place to another. He wasn't limited by our own physical reality. He had a glorified body, a body that had no pain in it, a body that had no death in it, a body that had no disease in it, a body that was built to be forever. That's the body we get. To live a life that is fully alive. Why? Because someday we will be face to face with Jesus forever. The God of all time, the God of the universe, the God of our salvation. We get to be with him forever. That should drive us. What does that mean? That means if this is true, I'm going to get a new body that's better than this old body. Then why in the world would I not spend this physical body for the sake of Jesus and the gospel in the world? What am I holding back for? What am I waiting for? I know that we have disease and we suffer pain and loss in this human world, but it is what Paul says, these are momentary afflictions to what? The glory that we will have with Jesus. There's been a rising tension in me about the disparity between what the Bible says we're supposed to be and who we are. It's even in the tension in my life. If the gospel's true, it should transform our souls. But if it's not, that means we don't believe it. 
We don't believe that Jesus died on the cross. We don't believe that he rose from the dead. We don't believe he's coming back. But Paul's saying all these things are true. That's what drove Paul 2,000 years ago. And that's why he said to a group of people, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me. Why? Because this is what drives my life. In a moment, we're going to come to communion. But I want you to think about something. What if we actually wore ourselves out for the sake of the gospel? for the good news that Jesus has died for all people, no matter what sin they have or what walk of life they come from, he's died for all people and he's called his people to go into the world, into their city, into their neighborhood, into their family for his purpose. But what are we too worried about? Ah, that's, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't have time, I have to work. I have other things that distract my time. Why do we do that? Are we willing to spend our lives because we know we're going to get a new one. You and I cannot lose. And the tension in me is that you and I need to hear. In fact, I'm going to ask, Jeremy, can you bring the drums down just a little bit? Okay, we're going to build, and I know it's a nice feel and everything, but I want you to hear what I'm saying, okay? We, as the church, are losing the battle, even though God and his kingdom is winning the war. I need you to hear me on this. The church is losing the battle because our, our culture is distracted and we as people are distracted. And so everything comes in vying for our attention to take us away from the mission that God has given us. Whether you are a believer for a day or for a hundred years and whether you are broken or you are perfect, if you say yes to Jesus, he has invited you into his mission in the world and has said it is your responsibility, your call to spend your life for the sake of other people. I've come to the conclusion, Jesus cannot be a, a compartment in my life. If he's a compartment, he's nothing, unless he's everything. So how does these, these motivations, these values change and shape the way you live your life? It should completely put us upside down. Everything that we make decisions about should be shaped by, is this driving me towards what? Spending my life, wearing myself out what? For the gospel. Ask yourself this question, when was the last time you were physically in pain because of the gospel. Because you had so sold yourself out to serve people that you felt the aches and pains of being tired because you were serving people and people were coming to know Jesus. Think about that. Paul writes about that, all the suffering physically that he went through. Why? Because he was telling people about Jesus. So what happened to Paul? He was beaten. He went through moments where he was hungry. He was actually taken out of a city and stoned, and they thought he was dead, and Paul had the thick skull to come back into the same city where they tried to kill him. He has scars all over his body. Why? This one happened in this city. This one happened here. Why? Because I was telling people about Jesus, and now I feel the pain of the gospel in my body. Why could Paul do that? Because he knows he's going to trade his old body in for a new one. So he's going to spend his body for the gospel, for the sake of Jesus. Why? Because nothing's more important to Paul and nothing should be more important to us than what? Knowing Jesus. So I say all that to say, so yeah, I'm getting passionate. Please forgive me. I'm not wanting to offend. I'm wanting us to get this. There is so much at stake in the world today. And we can't just sit back and say it's somebody else's responsibility. It is our responsibility. In fact, we have been given the values to drive us to be successful. So not only does Jesus win the war, the church wins the battle it's in today. That's what he's called us to do. So as we come to communion, this is what I want us to understand. And 
Communion should always be what it normally is, which is we come and we think about the sacrifice of Jesus, his blood shed for us that covers our sin, that gives us forgiveness, and his body that was broken, his suffering for us so that we could be free from our sin. The joy of experiencing that kind of freedom, that's what communion should be. But sometimes we forget that communion's more than that. Because communion is not only our salvation, communion is our demonstration. Jesus demonstrated for you and I what life is supposed to look like. We're supposed to live as Jesus lived. When Jesus came to the, to the end of his time with his disciples in John chapter 13 and he washed their feet, he took the role of a servant and then he turned to them and said, this is what you're supposed to do for each other. You're supposed to love, you're supposed to sacrifice. And he wasn't just talking about washing feet. He was talking about, he knew he was about to go to the cross and he was gonna die for the sins of the world. He was saying to his disciples, you are to what? Follow me. That's why Jesus says, if you follow me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. To what? Gain life, you have to do what? Lose it. This is all throughout the Gospels. This is the truth of the Scriptures. This is what Jesus is saying to us. And so when we come to communion today, here's what we should come to grips with. As you take the bread and you take the cup, look at that and be reminded, Jesus says, this is the way to life. This is what I not only did for you, but I did for you to know what it is to live. You have to die. You have to be willing to give all. You have to be willing to be driven by a bigger narrative than your own for the sake of God's purpose in the world. So would you close your eyes as we prepare for this? I want you to hear me. Embrace the sacrifice of Jesus that covers your sin, but realize Jesus didn't save you to sit. Jesus saved you so that you could be his person in your family so you could be his person in your neighborhood so that you could be even in a broken state the demonstration of his grace over people who he loves he saved you not just for salvation he saved you for good works that drive us so jesus in these next few moments as we sing as we take communion thank you for forgiveness thank you that we are right before you thank you that you died for our sin but thank you that you gave us the greatest example in all of human history of what life looks like so today jesus we ask that you would help us to follow in your footsteps we don't die for the sins of the world but we die for your purpose in our world so we surrender ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, and ask that you would come and do what only you can do in our lives. In your name, Lord.